Dear Grace Church, today's sermon text is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-15, through 15, which shows us the links between the grace of God and the gospel and the generosity of believers from our hearts to our fellow brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the, sincer the sincerity of your love also. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At the present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. O oh, Father, would you penetrate our heart with the truth of this passage, the beauty of the gospel, and the way it shapes the heart, desires, and actions of your people. Make us generous, Lord. Give us the joy of giving. Teach us the blessedness of sacrifice for the sake of your glory and the lives of others. Let us join you in the happy position of being generous. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, in this passage, Paul is wanting the Corinthian church to know both the experiential and objective grace of God. Experientially, he's calling them to apply God's grace by being generous, specifically by contributing to the relief of the suffering saints in Jerusalem. But he wants that application in their life, yes, for their benefit, for their joy, because he knows that it would be a blessing to them, but he grounds his application, being generous, in the objective grace of God. So the experiential grace of God, you being blessed, you being encouraged, you receiving joy by being generous, is rooted in the objective grace of God, 
which was manifested at Golgotha in the crucifixion of our Lord. The sermon in a sentence would sound something like this. It's more blessed to give than to receive, as is put on the most vivid display by looking at the generosity of God himself in the gospel of Christ. Well, I see two parts in today's passage that I'll draw our attention to. The second part is actually sandwiched right in the middle of the first part. So the first part really spans verses 1 to 15, and the second part is verse 9. Let's begin with the middle, the, the sandwich, uh, middle of the sandwich, because it's really the basis from which Paul draws the application of the broader passage. Verse 9, point number 1, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the objective grace of God put on display at Calvary, concrete, practical, tangible grace of God. And then from that, he draws out the experiential application of the grace of God in the Corinthians' lives. So if you just look at the passage in verse 1, we see, I wish to make known to you the grace of God. And in verse 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at verse 9. And then we'll back up to the grace that Paul wants the Corinthians to experience practically. <clears throat> Point number one, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Corinthians already know. And in the second part, Paul will be talking about what he wants them to know. Paul is basically saying, you know this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this point, one of the main things I'd like you to do, uh, or try to encourage you to do anyway, is go to our website and dig up Pastor Jim Sugg's sermon from January 14, 2018, when he preached an entire sermon on this one verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It is absolutely fantastic. So for today, I just want to quickly go phrase by phrase through this verse for our first point and show how it is really the support for everything that Paul is calling the Corinthians to do in this passage. There are four parts to verse 9. First, <clears throat> you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, that though he was rich. Third, yet for your sake he became poor. And fourth, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Well, just briefly, first, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul is talking to a people that he knows very well. Again, he spent at least 18 months with them. He had written to them multiple times and received reports from them multiple times. He knows these people. And <clears throat> he knows that they know something in particular. And in this phrase, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is speaking here of nothing other than the grace of the glorious gospel of our salvation. Notice the description of the Savior himself in this phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, before we even speak of his title, look at that precious personal pronoun, our Lord Jesus Christ. The personal pronoun is so immensely precious that it will not cease to be a source of wonder for endless eternities for all of God's children. Here we're not hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ, though that's true. We're hearing about our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that those to whom he is writing 
are those who have repented of their sins and believed on Jesus the Christ to be their Lord. And then that title, Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the combination of our Savior's earthly name and His Messianic assignment. The name Jesus was given to the second person of the eternal triune Godhead upon His incarnation. In the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that His name will be called Jesus upon His incarnation, His, his birth as a man. It became then and remains now and forevermore His human name. Christ is a reference to the truth that this Jesus, this man, this incarnate Son of God, second person of the Trinity, is indeed the Christ. That is, He's the Anointed One whom the Old Covenant promised that would be our Redeemer. He's the fulfillment of God's long-awaited promise to send a Savior. And He is also the Lord. He's the curious. He's the king. He's the potentate. He is the sovereign of the universe. And Paul is sure that the Corinthians not only know the gospel, but that they know that this Jesus is their Lord. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes in the second part of this verse to the reality that uh, as he phrases it, that though he was rich. This phrase, that though he was rich, in verse 9, speaks of the unimaginable endowment of eternal wealth that belongs to God alone. The Lord Jesus Christ has existed in eternal bliss from forever. The cumulative wealth of this world is but before Him monopoly money compared to the eternal riches that belong to Him by nature. The world's wealth neither impresses Him nor can afford Him. He is the definition of rich. We're not here mainly being told about material riches but rather about the riches of of the divine glory of the Redeemer. From the face of this one, God the Son, our Savior, has radiated the glory of the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit from everlasting upon the creation of the visible and the invisible realms. Jesus has deservedly been the object of ceaseless angelic praises. Paul knew that the Corinthians knew the grace of the gospel, including that our Lord Jesus Christ, before he became a man, was rich, endowed with incalculable worth and wealth. Though he was rich, Paul writes, number three, verse nine, yet for your sake he became poor. The poverty in this verse is more drastic than anything we could imagine. Much more so than a billionaire going bankrupt overnight. Paul is not talking about a poverty that strikes somebody outside of their control, but rather a voluntary poverty. A happy willingness to sacrifice the enjoyment of His eternal glory 
which he had existed in with the Father and the Spirit from endless ages, and as the object of all angelic praise, he voluntarily sacrifices that in order to truly robe himself in our humanity, becoming a man. The poverty involved in the incarnation of Christ is of such drastic proportion of humility that in eternity future, those who are God's children through Christ will still never fully comprehend the incredible distance of Jesus stooping low to take on our humanity. But look again, there's a personal pronoun. The personal pronoun in this portion of this glorious sentence is absolutely staggering. For your sake, he became poor. Paul is simply affirming that the Corinthians know that the self-humbling of the King of glory in the incarnation of Christ happened for you. Brothers and sisters, you know exactly what Paul is talking about if you have truly closed with Christ. When your heart is open to receive and believe the magnitude of love in the second person plural personal pronoun, your sake, he became poor. Then you are among the most blessed who have ever lived on this earth to understand that Christ humbled himself from unimaginable glory to unimaginable poverty for your sake. But it gets even better than that. The fourth and final part of verse 9, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Not only did Jesus come to you in an incalculable step of relinquishing riches untold, to embrace the most impoverished of poverty, but he did so with a purpose in view, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now this, of course, we must be quick to say and remind ourselves often, has nothing to do with earthly riches. We're not talking about material wealth. Rather, it has everything to do with heavenly endowment. Glory, specifically that those who are benefited by the grace of the gospel are those who will forever enjoy what Jesus himself enjoyed before he took on flesh in order to rescue us from our just everlasting damnation. The richness referred to in verse 9 that belongs to the Corinthians is the wealth of none other than delighting in God, with God, Forever. That's what it means to be truly rich. Are you wealthy in this regard? A person's wealth, it's been said, is to be measured by what he or she has once everything they own is taken away from them that can be taken from them. And those who have Christ and nothing besides Him are more wealthy than the combined billionaires club of the entire world. With this glorious gospel as the foundation of Paul's practical encouragement and applications, let us turn our attention then toward what Paul wanted the church at Corinth to have the joy of doing because they knew the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point, it spans verses 1 to 15. Verse 9, of course, that we've looked at is right in the middle. We wish for you, Paul says, to know the grace of God. Our second point is the application of the gospel in the lives of the local church. The way the first point showed up or became practical or was evident in the churches of Macedonia was obvious. It was apparent. How did it become obvious that they knew the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? That though he was rich, he became poor for our sake so that we through his poverty might become rich. How was it obvious? The answer is simple. They were generous. This is how grace and generosity are related like two links in a chain. They go together. And Paul wanted the church at Corinth to experience the same blessing and application of the gospel in their lives as well. Put another way, Paul did not want the Corinthians to miss out on any of the grace that Jesus purchased for them at the cross. What about you? Are you content to have only some of the grace of Christ? Or are you jealous to explore the full treasury of the riches of the Lord Jesus, which He purchased for us at Calvary? There are several portions to verses 1 to 15. We'll break it down into a, <coughs> pardon me, into a handful. Verse, uh, first, verses 1 to 5. God's grace had been made known in the churches of Macedonia. This is what Paul is saying in the first five verses. God's grace had been made known in the churches of Macedonia. Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, but he's writing to them from Macedonia. We learned that in last week's text. Whereas we saw last week, Paul in Macedonia was reunited with Titus, who had come to him from Corinth, and brought to Paul in Macedonia the positive report about the Corinthians' reception of Paul's severe letter, and had brought to Paul the report from Titus in Macedonia of the Corinthians' repentance toward the Lord and toward Paul, the servant of the Lord. And while Paul was there in Macedonia, he did what he did everywhere else that he went. That is, he ministered the gospel. He primarily served the churches and sought to feed them and nurture them in the grace of the gospel and to promote the gospel in the city. And as Paul ministered in Macedonia, something wonderful began to happen. The Macedonian churches heard of a need among their suffering siblings in Christ in Jerusalem. And they, the churches of Macedonia, did what verse 4 says. Look at that. They begged Paul and his companions. Now look at this phrase. With much urging to do what? For the favor, the privilege of participation in the support of the saints. Paul refers to this generous spirit among the churches of Macedonia as, quote, verse 1, the grace of God which had been given in the churches of Macedonia. 
But we must take note that the generosity of the Macedonians was not because they had a surplus of money sitting around and they didn't know what to do with it. Verse 3 tells us they gave of their own accord. Now look at this phrase. Verse 3. Beyond their ability. And verse 2 says that not only did they give of their own accord beyond their ability, but verse 2, in a great ordeal of affliction and in their deep poverty. But notice this. In that condition, they, verse 2, overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. That means their abundant giving. Please don't miss that the sacrificial giving for the aid of the suffering brothers and sisters in Jerusalem was perceived by the churches of Macedonia with what verse 2 calls an abundance of joy. Oh, how glad they were. They begged Paul. They urged Paul to have the privilege, the favor of participating in contributing to the needs of their suffering brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And they did it, verse 2, with an abundance of joy. Do you see that? The reason Paul refers to it in verse 1 as the grace of God at work in the churches of Macedonia is fundamentally because the believers in those churches felt the same way about the sacrifice that they were making as God felt about the sacrifice that He made. God is joyful about the sacrifice that Christ accomplished for His people. Don't feel sorry for Jesus. Don't feel bad for Jesus. Receive Him. He came to joyfully rescue you for the joy set before Him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the Corinthians understood the grace in God's heart to make a sacrifice for the relief of His people. And they, therefore, took joy in making any sacrifice for the relief of God's people. The gift of joyful giving is embedded in all who receive the gospel because our God loved to give so that our suffering may forever be relieved. In turn, that's just simply what God's people do. Isn't it striking that churches exist from a very surface level way of looking at it because for 2,000 years, Christians have voluntarily gave with joy for the advance of the gospel and the upbuilding of the saints. Why is Paul telling the Corinthians about this? Why is Paul laying an accent mark in verses 1 to 5 on the fact that the Macedonian churches were so joyfully giving even in the abundance of their afflictions and poverty to the relief of the saints of uh, suffering saints in Jerusalem because he knows that the Holy Spirit works in local churches through two avenues, through what is taught and through what is caught 
He's telling the Corinthians about the joyful gospel of grace rooted generosity in the Macedonians because Paul wants the Corinthians to know that they can get on get in on that great joy also. Paul's a good reporter. He a good reporter. He's a good journalist. He's accurately reporting the good news for the sake of stirring up others to know where the fountain is so that they too can take part in the blessing also. Look at verse 5. To see Paul's description of the generosity and how widespread it was in the hearts of the Macedonian believers. These people weren't tipping Jesus. These people were giving him their life. Verse 5 And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Do you see the progression in this verse? The Macedonians heard the gospel and first gave themselves to the Lord. They didn't first give their stuff. They first gave themselves. Then the Macedonians were so thankful to God for sending Christ ambassadors to them that they also gave themselves to those who brought the gospel of grace to them. Notice that Paul adds that important phrase at the end of verse 5, by the will of God. This means that they trusted themselves to be guided even further into the riches of the glorious gospel by those who delivered the gospel to them in the first place. While the Corinthians had been indifferent toward Paul until their repentance which Titus just brought word to him in Macedonia about. While Paul, while the Corinthians had been indifferent toward Paul, Paul wanted them to know that the Macedonians were examples of wide open hearts, true generosity, sharing their lives both with the Lord and with the Lord's ambassadors. And in turn, they shared their possessions with others also. So the first point under number two is that God's grace had been made known in the churches of Macedonia, both in their generosity toward the suffering saints and in their wholesale surrender of their lives to the Lord, and in this case, to his ambassadors. Second, we see in verses 6 to 8 that Paul calls upon the Corinthians to complete the same gracious work. Well, as I said earlier, Paul was speaking to the Corinthians about the Macedonians' generosity because he wanted the Corinthians to also have the blessing of participating in the same kind of generous sacrificial giving. Verse 6, so Paul says, So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. well all the way back in 1 Corinthians 16, it's very clear that the Corinthians had indicated to Paul that they intended to provide an offering for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem, but they were sidetracked by their own sin from completing their promised intentions. So now Paul says that they, knowing that they repented of their rebellion against the Lord, which Titus told Paul about, Paul now reminds them again. Don't you remember your prior intentions? Verse 6, you had previously made a beginning. Now it's time to complete this gracious work. He even affirms his confidence in how the Lord is again working among the church. Now that they've repented, now that they've opened their heart wide to the Lord and wide to Paul, verse 7 says, you abound in everything. Paul's letting them know, I trust that your walk with Jesus has been restored. 
You abound in faith, verse 7, in utterance, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in the love that we inspired in you. He's very sure of their walk with Jesus. Paul knows that God is doing a work of grace among the Corinthian church, just as he was doing among the Macedonian churches. But Paul wanted the Corinthians to join the Macedonians in returning to not only an upward focus, repentance toward God, not only an inward focus of restoration of unity in the body, but also of an outward focus, an opportunity to show to others the love of Christ that they had received. That's why he says in verse 7, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Instead of commanding the church to generously give, Paul doesn't do that in this passage. He rather appeals to them on the basis of showing Christ's love to others that had been so lavishly shown to them. Verse 8, he even says it explicitly, I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. So, verses 6 to 8, Paul calls the Corinthians, like he exampled in the Macedonians, verses 1 to 5, to complete the gracious work. And then third, he tells them in verses 10 to 15 that they're to do so according to their own ability. Look at this, verses 10 to 15. So we've just come out of verse 9. That's where we started the sermon, the ground of the gospel, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, His abundant, rich, lavish eternity, which He stepped out of and came into time to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, risen back into majesty and glory unspeakable, where all of His people will enjoy those very riches with Him for His glory for all eternity. In verse 10, after that parenthetical focus on the gospel in verse 9, Paul again picks up his encouragement to the church at Corinth to connect the links between grace in the gospel and generosity in God's people. As the gospel is the great display of God's grace, in which Christ gave up the greatest riches and embraced the greatest poverty, not only the poverty of coming to earth. Let me be clear. The poverty of verse 9 that Jesus experienced was not only stooping into our humanity to come to earth, but especially in being forsaken by His Father at the cross so that we would never be forsaken, so that we could forever enjoy His eternal riches. So also, God's people, verse 10 and following, ought to join our God in joyfully, generously giving for the sake of others' relief, according to our own ability. In verse 10, Paul makes clear that this is not a matter of command, but of appeal, and that the motive of Paul's heart is, quote, to your advantage, verse 10. That is, that it would be a blessing to the Corinthians to have the favor of participating in what God himself was doing for the care of his people elsewhere beyond Corinth. And Paul, therefore, does not hesitate to remind the Corinthians. He wants them to have this advantage. He wants them not to be myopic and self-centered and navel-gazing and all about themselves. He wants them to join God in looking out to spread His own glory among the world. And so, in verse 10, Paul reminds the Corinthians that a year prior, 
they were desiring and beginning to make a contribution to this need. But verse 11 makes clear that as is true in all of life, it's never enough to live in the land of good intentions. The Corinthians said, yeah, we want to do this. Well, then a whole year passed and nothing happened. It's never enough to live in the land of good intentions. The work, verse 11, actually needs to be, quote, finished. And the verse teaches desiring to do something is one thing, but completing the work is another thing. The Christian's generosity is to flow from the proportion entrusted to each person by the Lord. That's why I've titled this point in verses 10 to 15, according to your ability. Verse 12 says, according to what a person has. As has been said many, many times in church history, God does not raise your income, mainly to raise your living capacity, but to raise your giving capacity. The point of Christian generosity is not asceticism. God, God is not more pleased when a person gives so much that he or she can't survive. So those are opposite sides of the same coin. If God increases your standard of uh, income, I mentioned that it's not to increase your living capacity, but your giving capacity. And on the other side of the coin, um, it's not to be so sacrificial that uh, we think we need to be ascetic, so, so generous that we ourselves can't even survive. Verse 13 makes the point so plain. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction. It's not asceticism. The Jerusalem saints were suffering. There was a famine that had swept through, seriously jeopardizing their most basic human needs. And because they were Christians, they were coincidentally being left out of the local distributions of things like government grain and other provisions. And the saints in Jerusalem who named the name of Christ and were being ostracized and really left for dead needed help. Isn't it wonderful that one of God's favorite ways of helping his children is through his children? God could have sent the most abundant year of produce that Jerusalem had ever experienced. Instead, he distributed their provision and the resources they needed to his children in other parts of the world so that those children could join the joy of seeing God work on behalf of his kids. Like verse 14 says, at the present time, your abundance being a supply for their need. The word equity in verses 13 and 14 uh, has been challenging for obvious reasons. It says, but by way of equality, verse 13, that there may be equality, verse 14, and that's challenged many. Is Paul basically teaching that Christianity intends to enact a system of perfect symmetry among household incomes? You know, all the Christians in the first century of all the churches and all the places needed the exact same equality. Calvin puts the meaning clearly and succinctly. I understand, Calvin writes, equality here simply as meaning an equality of proportional right. The word is only used three times in the New Testament. Two times in this chapter, verse 13 and 14, 
and one time in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, where we find Paul actually wrote that passage as well, we find the words, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Calvin then adds, Paul certainly does not mean in Colossians 4 that they should be equal in condition and station, masters and slaves. But by this term, he expresses, Calvin concludes, that, that humanity and clemency and kind treatment which masters in their turn owe to their servants. That kind of equality, that kind of fairness. You have a master in heaven. How do you want him to treat you? In the same way, equally, Treat the people who you have opportunities to influence and bless. It's basically the second greatest commandment, isn't it? Love them as you would want to be loved. So if you were starving to death in a famine and your brother had a house full of bread, would you want your brother to send all of his bread so that you were full and he was starved? No. You would want him to want to send you enough bread. <laughs> To survive and to actually do it rather than just living in the land of good intentions thinking that he should do it. That's what Paul's talking about here. However equally the Christians, the Corinthians, pardon me, would want to be treated is how they should generously extend provision to the saints of Jerusalem. Finally, Paul grounds his reasoning in the Old Testament scriptures in verse 15. As it is written... He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. This quotation comes from Exodus 16, verse 18, where we find the account of God first providing the manna for the children of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. They were to collect every day as much as they needed per household and not try to hoard any of it until morning or else it would spoil. Listen to the passage, Exodus 16, verses 16 to 21. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, some gathered little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry at them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. So what happened in the Exodus account was that the over-hoarding of the greedy actually spoiled and attracted worms. Paul is saying that the same thing happens in the New Testament with stingy Christians. Their stockpile will become the very source of what is spoiling in their lives, especially if it's rooted in what he calls elsewhere, 1 Timothy 6, the love of money, which Paul says is the root of all sorts of evil. So the contrast in the Old Testament account from what Paul is exhorting in the New Testament book of Corinthians, chapter 8, ought not be missed. The issue is love. I say contrast, I should have said comparison. The comparison is neighbor love. The issue is, do you love your money or do you love your brother? 
Do you love your manna or do you love your brother? If you love your brother in the Old Testament, then you're not going to take more than you need because there's just enough for every household. God said that. Not the same amount, but as Calvin said, the same proportion. Similarly, if you love your brother in the New Testament, you're not going to allow him to suffer while you're spoiled on worldly riches. It's ultimately a matter of the heart, which is why Paul grounds his argument in verse 9 in the gospel of God's grace. There's an illustration that I want to take the risk to share that may help some of you. Bear with me. I try to almost exclusively use negative personal illustrations when I'm trying to drive home any point in the sermon and use a personal illustration. But for what it's worth, there's uh, there, there certainly are probably way more negative ones to choose from than positive ones. But I'm going to gladly take a risk of using a positive example at this place in Second Corinthians. Not to brag on Tracy and I, but really to brag on God's gracious faithfulness. Here's the example. In mine and Tracy's 20 years of marriage, by God's grace, Tracy and I have never missed one offering to our local church. What a gift. What a joy. What a blessing. Now, there have been many, many, many times that we didn't know exactly how the bills were going to get paid that month or where the next you know, big need or provision was coming from. Uh, there was a time, actually, when I was without a job. Tracy was eight months pregnant with our second child, Caitlin. I spent, uh, during that uh, little window of time, about 40 to 50 hours a week looking for a job, hunting for a job, even while I was uh, then a full-time seminary student. But even then, in that really challenging season, we experienced God's faithfulness to us in a way that no book, no seminary class, no sermon, nothing else could have ever taught us. We wouldn't have been able to learn it otherwise. We continued to tithe. God continued to provide. Well, because the heart of God seen in the gospel of Christ, the consistent principle of the Bible is this. You cannot outgive God. You can't do it. It's impossible. God can't be outgiven because God is never benefited. God is the great benefactor. Not only does God not receive, he cannot receive. He is the giver par excellence. That's his nature. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. What I'm saying has certainly been twisted by sinful carnal men and by shyster preachers who are greedy for selfish gain. But when people abuse a truth, it does not negate the truth that's being abused. On his last trip away from Corinth, after Paul wrote the letter that we're looking at now and then went to visit them, when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem to deliver the generous gift that the churches of Macedonia and the church of Corinth and others provided for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem, when Paul was on his way from Corinth to Jerusalem, he made a pit stop. He gathered on the shore of Miletus for a final tearful farewell with the elders of the church at Ephesus. This, I remind you, was the church, the Ephesians, with whom Paul spent 
the longest time that he spent with any local church, three and a half years or so. What was the very last thing that the Apostle Paul said to the pastors of that local church? Does this surprise you? Acts 20, verse 32 through 35. Paul says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. Now all of that was the experiential grace of God at work in the life of the Apostle Paul. He loved to give, he loved to sacrifice, and he did it because he knew that God had made the ultimate sacrifice for him and he was reaping the benefit of seeing God's grace flow through his life that way. And this is how he concludes. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Process that statement. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, Paul told the Ephesian elders, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That sounds like the Macedonian churches. Rejoicing that they had been privileged, even in their deep poverty and suffering, to liberally, generously give. Process that. It is more blessed to give than receive. Use mental intentionality to think about those words. I mean, break it down in your mind. Chew on it. Flip it around. See if you can lock into the inverse of what Paul said Jesus taught. What would the inverse be? It's more blessed to receive than give. But that's not true. And the truth dictated the way that Paul lived his entire life, which was enumerated in the verses right before that about how he gave and gave and gave and gave and gave. As much of a blessing as it is for a child to enter a room or encounter a surprise birthday party with a table full of wrapped gifts with his or her name on every tag, it is more blessed to be on the other side of the table as one of the people who gave the gifts. Here's the radical teaching about what Paul last said to the Ephesian elders. If you and I want or desire or pursue the blessing of God in our life, then we ought to give generously. Paul should have said, forget the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it's more blessed to give than receive. He should have said, forget what Jesus said if you should not want, desire, and pursue the blessing in your giving. Paul is clearly emphasizing that in our giving, we ought to keep in mind, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself taught us, it is more of a blessing in your sacrifice than in your selfishness. The word for blessed in Acts 20, verse 35, more blessed to give than receive, is the Greek word makareon, literally happy. That's the word. That's the blessedness that Jesus is talking about when he talks about Christian giving. 
And that gets to the ultimate aspect of this truth. If it is more blessed to give than receive, and it is, then it must necessarily mean that God is the happiest person in the universe. Because nobody has ever given more than God. Do you see it? God gave the greatest treasure in the universe to the most impoverished people so that we could share with Him in His lavish riches forever. The Gospel, friends. The glorious Gospel. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why Paul concludes the section of 2 Corinthians that we're in Look uh, in, in chapter 9, verse 15, with these words, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Literally, such a gift that cannot thoroughly be related by human words. When you are smitten by the love of God, when you feel His kiss on your guilty cheek, and you watch Him drop your well-deserved anvil on the head of His guiltless Son at the cross, then you will understand the grace that Paul's talking about. And everybody who tastes the grace of the Gospel, everybody who's united by faith to the risen Jesus, everybody who turns from their sin and puts their hope in Christ alone to save them forever, everybody who has the knowledge of their sins forgiven and their slate white clean and the righteousness of Christ imputed to their account by faith, everybody who lives in fellowship with God and knows that the veil is open and has access into the throne room and goes boldly into the throne of grace and lays down their heart before God, everybody who's experienced the grace of the gospel knows deep down that it's more blessed to give than receive. So friends, here's the application. Know the grace of God. Objectively, and subjectively. It's really the two points of the sermon. Know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, that's the objective. If you don't get verse 9, then you miss the entire point. Not only of this passage, but of everything. Have you done what verse 5 is talking about? Have you given yourself to the Lord? And are you walking in close fellowship with those who help you grow in the grace of the Gospel? Have you given yourself to the servants of the Lord who, who want nothing more than for you to be beautified with the beauty of Jesus more and more all the days of your life. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins just like the Bible said He would. That He rose again from the dead and that He ascended to heaven just like the Bible said that He would. And He's coming again for His people. And if you will turn from your sin and put your faith in Him, God will make you His child forever. Know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, number two, Know the grace of God. I don't mean objectively in the cross of Christ. I mean subjectively, experientially. More and more. Get to know and experience the grace of God. How? Two ways. Uh, one way. Give generously. 
give generously. Let me be clear. The New Testament does not enforce tithing. At least I don't believe so. And if there's any principle of giving in the New Testament, it is not commanded on moral grounds. In the Old Covenant, that was the case. But in the New Covenant, meaning under the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the ground, the reason, the basis for giving is what Charles Hodge refers to as particularly Christian grounds. Not moral grounds, Christian grounds. By particularly Christian grounds, Hodge explains that the power of the gospel at work in the life of the true believer shows up this way. Quote, no man can enter into the meaning of verse 9. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was rich, came, became poor for you so that you through his poverty might become rich. No man can enter into the meaning of verse 9 or fill its power, Hodge said, without thereby being made willing to sacrifice himself for others. Then Hodge laid out the radically biblical test for each of our hearts. According to 1 John 3.17, let me read that verse and then tell you Hodges' one sentence application. Whoever has the world's goods, 1 John 3.17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Hodge wrote, it is vain for any man to profess or to imagine that he has love to Christ if he does not love the brethren and is not liberal in relieving their wants. If you want to know what you believe, like what's your theology, many have said, just take a look at your check stubs, look at your debit card statement. Look at your credit card statement. Look at your PayPal, your Venmo, your Cash App, and any other way that you spend money. In a very real sense, that's a symptom of our soteriology, our understanding of the gospel. When I make the application of this text, give generously, I'm trying my best to tell you to do exactly what I believe this text is explaining that Christians ought to do. How, how does it happen in the passage? Like practically, how, how do we give generously in this passage? Answer, by giving to our local church through which the resources are sent, in this case, for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. When I say give generously, I, I make no apology for saying I believe that the way that the Bible lays that out is primarily by giving to our local church. How, how did the church at Corinth, verses 6 to 15, or the churches of Macedonia, verses 1 to 5, have the money to send to the churches of Jerusalem? The answer is as obvious as it is simple. The members of the churches gave money to the church. I firmly believe that the pattern of Scripture is that giving to the local church is the most strategic way to advance the true gospel to the ends of the earth. It may not be the quickest. It took the Corinthians at least a year to get back around to their original promise to be part of the generosity. And they were mainly slowed down by their own sinfulness and their disunity. Not slowed down by God's ability to use them. But God was patient with them, wasn't He? God was willing to wait. God wasn't looking for the quickest way. He was looking for the faithful way. And when they came to repentance, God used them. 
because as we read the New Testament, we see that there's no other institution on the planet that's been entrusted with the assignment from heaven to be the pillar and support of the truth. Money can go quick, but it's the purity and preservation of the gospel that's demanded to be propagated to the ends of the earth for the salvation of sinners and the upbuilding of the saints and the glorification of God. God didn't kick the church at Corinth to the curb when they were a year long in their lukewarmness and rebellion and sin. He didn't just say, forget you, put them in the corner and get on with his plan through another means to reach the world and support suffering saints elsewhere. No, God patiently ministered to the Corinthians until they were at a healthy place until they came to true repentance and restoration to God. Then He used them. Sounds just like the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. God didn't raise up another prophet when Jonah rebelled. He restored Jonah because God wanted to use him. And He restores churches because He wants to use them. Yes, Nineveh had to wait a long time for Jonah to get right with God. But God's not in the business of discarding people or discarding churches because they get hard-hearted or lukewarm or rebellious for a season. Jesus died for them. And He will graciously, patiently work in them until they too are at a place where He again works through them. As the saying goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. From an article released this week by... Uh, written by Jared Wilson, entitled, Your Weird, Messy Church is God's Plan A. Wilson writes, You don't have to be cool or big or strong or technologically savvy or politically fashionable or culturally relevant. You just have to repent of your sin and commit your weird, broken church to her king. Your weird, messy church, Wilson concludes, is God's plan A for your world. My question would be to the church at Corinth and to Grace Church and every other local church. Why wait? Why, why wait to join God in His purposes that are so clearly revealed in Scripture? As far as I can tell, the only plan the New Testament unfolds for us for the edification and equipping of all of God's people and for the evangelization of the entire world is the local church. God's using a billion other means. I'm not suggesting at all that we shouldn't pray for and support a bunch of other ways that God is so graciously working. But I am saying unequivocally that the primary way and perhaps the only way the New Testament spells it out, the best way, the most long-lasting, deep-rooted, gospel-preserving, Jesus-exalting, God-glorifying, soul-saving way is the local church. Therefore, I firmly believe that the wisest investment that Tracy and I can make of our widow's might, our material possessions, supplies, money, whatever else, and our life is by planting ourselves and giving our resources through the local church for the glory of God to the ends of the earth until Jesus comes. What a joy. Father, thank you so much for your word. Be glorified by it and cause us to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen.